So let yourself sit and listen in a way that's not uh, demanding of remembering things. There's no tests, no grades. Um, actually, much of it um, isn't even something to bother remembering. It isn't, really. It's just kind of reminders. Let it touch you, and perhaps there'll be some aspect of the Dharma, the teachings, that reminds your heart of something that you already know, um, reawakens that, and then carry that with you. So this evening I'd like to continue a series of teachings that we've been working with through the course of the summer on our own true nature, our Buddha nature, our inner nobility. Um, And as you can see, those of you who came in over the bridges, there's this wonderful big white tent, um, like a big sailboat out in the meadow. Um, We had uh, Pema Chodron, who's a very dear friend, come and do a weekend of teaching here uh, for oh six or seven hundred people over the over the weekend, um, the focus of her teaching was the theme losing our appetite for aggression, um, and I think it's both good at Spirit Rock and hopefully some of it will spill out to the national scene. Um, and much of the teaching that she did was really simple and straightforward. She talked about living where we are, being in the moment, on the dot was her phrase, living here, and then all of a sudden you get hooked by something. You know what it means to get hooked, right? Aggression, fear, confusion, reaction in some way. She said, and then what do we do in that moment? We can either react, just like when you have poison oak and it itches and you scratch it and you spread it all over your body. That's kind of what our reactions do. You get hooked a little bit and then you spread it over yourself and others. She called that temporary relief, right? Or you can stop for a moment when you're hooked, when you're lost in aggression or fear or confusion, greed, and breathe and return to this quality of presence, one's Buddha nature, be here. And she talked about it as kind of poking holes in the clouds and realizing there's another reality or presence. So with that theme, maybe we'll continue tonight. Um, So I came to Pema for a day, because she's a good friend, and it was a pleasure to hear her teach. Plus which, you know, you always kind of want to hear what the other sales reps in the company are (laughs) doing for you know. But Sunday I couldn't go because I had to go to traffic school. Um, I told them of that, you know. And um, I was a Boston cab driver for a number of years when I was in graduate school. And so I have some Boston cab driver driving habits, basically in Boston. One-way streets and red lights are considered suggestions, right? (laughs) And so um, I was speeding, that's... um, Yes, officer, I was speeding, quite above the speed limit anyway. So I I told Pema that, you know, I couldn't come for the second day to listen to her, but I was sure that I would get much of the same teachings. And and, and true enough, the guy running traffic school, Mark Horowitz, he was a good teacher, very funny, and he was kind of a Dharma teacher. It turns out he sits at Spirit Rock, and he's talking about breathing and being courteous to one another, and being patient instead of aggressive. And so it's just like Pema, you know? There was this whole room of people getting their Dharma teachings um, and watching the clock, basically, right? So, anyway, the, the theme for the summer, as I mentioned, of the return to our true nature, our Buddha nature, is also called in another language in the Buddhist tradition, um, the discovery of our inherent perfection. And when I started this series, we talked about the 100,000 eons of the um, mountain the size of Mount Everest being worn away by the bird that drags a silk cloth across the top of the mountain every 100 years. And after uh, enough times of that bird coming by, 
the mountain gets worn away, and that's one, one mahakalpa, one eon, and a hundred thousand of those, and four immensities, and so forth, and then you get to become a Buddha in the mythology. So basically, it takes a long time by that measure. Um, but of course, it doesn't really speak about time. It's a mythological language that speaks about something outside of clock time and digital time and you know personal planner time and calendar time. It speaks about the time of how many million breaths you get in a life, the time of how many hundreds of thousands of thoughts you have in the course of a week or a month, the time that's really eternal and already here with the world pouring through us in this amazing way. And the qualities of this innate wisdom that we carry, that we've spoken about, is the natural generosity of the heart. How much, when we're able to, we, we long to give of ourselves, of our, of our song, of our vision, of our understanding, of our love, whatever we have of our being. And life is really a sad one if we can't share ourselves. Innate generosity, innate virtue or integrity, innate simplicity of presence, how actually most people want to live more simply, the energy of aliveness of life, the innate energy, and the innate wisdom of life, of our hearts. So tonight, the next quality in this set of teachings of our own inner nobility is, and I heard a lot about it in traffic school, is patience. And, you know, it's so easy to sit down in meditation and start and then kind of peek at your watch, think, well, okay, I'm meditating, but how soon will it be done, right? Um, when will I get there? When will something good happen? There's this famous story of the young, very determined young man who came into his Zen monastery, kind of charged right in there and said, I'm ready to the master. I really want to come and practice. I'm ready to practice and get enlightened. How long will it take? And the master said, 10 years. The guy said, 10 years? What if I really apply myself? What if I try really hard? You know how young men are. And he looked at him and said, well, in that case, it'll probably take 20 years, right? <laughs> and the guy said, what do you mean 20 years? What if, I, I mean, why would you say that? What if I really devote myself? I do anything you say, I'm, I'm really going to go for enlightenment. And he said, well, in your case, then 30 years. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? So one idea is that if we do something hard, you know, aim our meditation or our spiritual practice, sooner or later we'll be able to perfect ourselves to fix our personality, <laughs> right? <laughs> to calm ourselves so we're never depressed, never lonely, never needy or angry or greedy. Anybody find that yet? Please raise your hand. <laughs> Give you your money back, right? So only wise and holy things come out of us, only the most perfect intention, right? And we might think as we do meditation for a while that, oh, if I come and I sit on retreat for a week or 10 days or a month, you know, and I do more, more sitting and more meditation and so forth and practice and work out and the gym and, you know, do all the good things, then I'll get there sooner. I don't know. There's this Yiddish expression that says, sleep quickly, we need the pillows. Right? <laughs> It's a little like that in meditation. Hurry up and meditate, right? I mean, come on. And the reason that we do it, in part, is because we live in a hurried culture. The psychiatrist at Tufts University who wrote the book Hurried Child, Dr. Elkin, talked about having eight and nine-year-olds come into his psychiatric practice who had ulcers from stress you know, getting ready for their interviews to get into a top kindergarten. It's true, you know, and parents reading alphabet cards to their children in the womb so that they'll, you know, learn um, and, you know, make these perfect little adults, right, as quickly as we can, which is to say perfect consumers mostly, you know. Um, our culture has forgotten our natural rhythm. We have a cultural bias against any dependency writes Peggy O'Mara in Mothering Magazine. 
against any emotion or behavior that indicates weakness. This is nowhere more tragically evident than in the way we push our children beyond the limits and timetables. We establish outside standards that are more important than the inner experience when we wean our children rather than trusting they'll wean themselves. When we insist our children sit at the table and finish their meals rather than trusting they will eat well if healthful food is provided on a regular basis. When we toilet train them at an early age rather than trusting they'll learn to use the toilet when they're ready to do so. It is the nature of the child to be dependent and it is the nature of dependence to be outgrown. Dependency, insecurity, weakness are natural states for a child. They're the natural states for all of us at times, but for children they are predominant conditions and they are outgrown. Just as we grow from crawling to walking, from babbling to talking, from puberty to sexuality, as humans we move from weakness to strength, from uncertainty to mastery. When we refuse to acknowledge the stages prior to mastery, we teach our children to hate and distrust their weaknesses. And we start them on a journey of lifetime conflict, conflict with themselves, using external standards to set up an inner duality of what is immediately their experience and how they're supposed to be. Begrudging dependency because it is not independence is like begrudging winter because it is not yet spring. Dependency blossoms into independence in its own sweet time. And I talk about this because the way we raise our children is what we will bequeath to this world. So it's absolutely critical to us. And you can feel how painful it is, the cost, the shadow, when we don't honor the cycles of nature, whether it's in our children or whether it's in our own lives. This from Zorba the Greek, where he writes, I remember one morning when I discovered a cocoon in the bark of a tree just as the butterfly was making a hole in its case preparing to come out. I waited a while, but it was too long and I was impatient. So I bent over and breathed on it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could, and the miracle began to happen faster than life. The case opened, the butterfly started slowly crawling out, and I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them. Breathing over it, I tried to help it with my breath, in vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently, and the unfolding of the wings needed to be a gradual process in the sun. Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear, all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately, and a few seconds later died in the palm of my hands. Spiritual practice offers a different understanding where the perfection is not in what we'll get, but the perfection is in the waiting, a willing heart, a listening heart. There's a beautiful passage where Carl Jung writes about this quality of presence, of waiting. Um, At some point, he's talking about some patient And he uses the language of the devil in this particular essay. And he says, if you get a phone call, or you get some urgent message, or a telegram, or now it would be your fax or email, and there's something that you have to do right away, and you've got to go down and get it notarized and respond and do it, and, you know, immediately something big has to happen like that. He said, you know whose voice that is, don't you? Almost always. It's the voice of the devil is the word that he uses. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to it. Because nothing that really needs to be done from the heart requires, almost nothing, requires us to act in that way. There is instead the quality of what Rilke called living the question, being in the present with the wisdom of not knowing, the wisdom of insecurity. T.S. Eliot, 
I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. And wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. And it doesn't mean sitting and kind of meditating and waiting for something to happen. Waiting, 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 like waiting for the bus. What's going to happen next? Something good. It is, O nobly born, this which we know, an invitation to be present for what is so here and now. It's not waiting for something better, but rather in a deeper way, the quality of patience is the presence for each moment unfolding. Zen master Suzuki Roshi says, patience isn't even the right translation of this word. He said a better word for this teaching is the word constancy. Our sitting and meditation, our love relationships, our political activism, our work in the community, our care for our body. Ask a constancy, a willingness to be present for what is, breathing in and out, joys and sorrows, gain and loss, praise and blame. Those who understand, says Zhuang Tzu, have no mind to fight the Tao. They do not, by their own contriving, try to help the Tao along. They rest in the rhythms. And there's this invitation in spiritual life to step out of the fast lane, if you will. I mean, you can go in the fast lane in moments when it's needed, but not to have to live in the fast lane. It's pretty stressful. It's actually not much fun. I mean, here's Rumi. He writes, A friend remarks to the prophet, Why is it I get screwed in business deals? It's like a spell. I become distracted by business talk and make the wrong decisions. This is what Carl Jung is talking about. Muhammad replies, Stipulate with every transaction that you need three days to make sure. Deliberation is one of the qualities of God. Throw a dog a bit of something, he sniffs it to see if he wants it. Be that careful. Sniff with your wisdom nose. Get still, clear, then decide. The universe came into being gradually over six days. God could have just commanded be. But creation usually unfolds like calm breakers. Constant slow movement like a small creek that stays clear, that doesn't stagnate, but finds a way through numerous details deliberately to the ocean. Deliberation is joy, born of joy like a bird from an egg. I mean, when we look at it, what's the hurry? Where are we going? It's like playing music faster to get done, right? Okay, I'll get through this piece of music, and then I can get through the next piece of music. In a way, our life is a piece of music. What is the hurry? Now, one of the things that's particularly difficult as one drops into the place of presence and patience, O nobly born, is the other people around us who aren't patient. This was one of the topics at traffic school, right? <laughs> How do you deal with all those people who aren't patient around you or get behind you and get aggressive and signal you in various ways with their <laughs> gestures and so forth? There is a um, very moving uh, film, part of a film, uh, made by uh, Kurosawa, the great Japanese filmmaker, about a physician named Redbeard, doctor. And one of the key moments in this film is when a young woman, she's probably a teenager, um, uh, is brought to him and she's uh, somewhat mad. She's physically um, distressed and diseased um, and also somewhat crazed. And she had been sold to some brothel or something and abused terribly. And finally she's brought to this doctor and he has a young apprentice. And so he says to his young apprentice doctor, all right, you take care of her. And the apprentice tries to um, 
put medicine on her wounds and give her the medicine that she needs to take. And every time the apprentice gets near, she shouts madly at him and throws things and spills things and runs away. And, and finally the apprentice comes and said, this woman doesn't want to be healed. I can do nothing. And the apprentice actually gets kind of dejected, you know, I'm, I'm here to be, an, you know, be a doctor and she won't take my medicine. So the old doctor comes in the room after his apprentice gives up, says she's impossible to treat, and sits down at her bedside and pours out a spoonful of medicine, offers it to Otoyo as her name. And with a big backhanded movement, she splashes it in his face just as she'd done with the apprentice, all over him. Redbeard raises his eyebrows, calmly pours out another spoonful of medicine and offers it to her. Again, she slaps it rudely into his face. With a look of resignation and perhaps a hint of amusement, Redbeard pours out another spoonful of medicine and again politely offers it to her. Again, she slaps it defiantly, but now there's also confusion and fear in her face. Redbeard patiently re repeats the procedure, and this time she hesitates for a moment, hitting the spoon almost reluctantly, just hard enough to splash him a little bit with the medicine. It's beginning to dawn on her that perhaps this man isn't really going to get angry. That perhaps, unlike any other adult she's dealt with, he wants to help her and not use her. As this realization dawns, she opens her mouth as if in bewilderment, and the old doctor gently inserts a spoonful of medicine. And a few hours later, she begins to talk for the first time in the film. She'd been mute, asking the young assistant, why didn't he hit me? So it is tough because they're not, uh, not, you know, patient out there. But what is it that we most value in our hearts? What matters to us? What is the place of wisdom in our life from which we can grace the world? So here I am going along with these teachings for you tonight. But the truth is that I'm sort of an impatient person myself. It's just how it is. And my, my teaching colleague, Joseph Goldstein, with whom I started teaching 30-some years ago, very, very good friend, he's much more patient than I. So we'd get to places where we were having retreats, and I'd be setting out the chairs and fixing everything up. And he would just sit there, you know, and it would all get done, right? And one day I asked him, I said, Joseph, how come you don't do much and, you know, everything gets done anyway? <laughs> How do you do this? And he said, well, there are a couple things. He said, first of all, I'm a lot more patient than you are, and I really can wait. And I realize if I wait sooner or later, it will happen, and I won't necessarily have to do it. <laughs> and he said, the other thing that's important, and he has a little of this quality of being the prince or something like that, is that I realize that it's absolutely fine for other people to do things as well as myself. I'm completely comfortable with that. <laughs> so... But it's not so easy for me, you know, if I look in the kind of archetypal Greek mythology, my, the, the god I feel the most kind of connected with would be Hermes or something, you know, sort of the messenger running around. And I do things quickly, I hate to be late, I think quickly, you know. I, even now, almost 60 years, I still go run up the stairs two, three at a time, you know. And I remember actually this person came on a retreat a three-month retreat that I taught in our center in Massachusetts, who had listened to a lot of my tapes, you know, and read books and said, oh, this person sounds so wise and so forth. And then they came to this retreat. And he came into an interview partly through the retreat, and he said, you know, having a hard time. And finally he admitted he was having a hard time with me. He said, such a disappointment. <laughs> yes, of course, you know. And he said, I loved your tapes, but then I just watched you running around. He said, you run up the stairs like an Italian shoe salesman. Was his, uh... <laughs> so when I pay attention to my impatience, you know, and to the speed inside and so forth, I realize that part of it is to get things done, but underneath it, it's not just about waiting for something or not impatient for some result. It's deeper than that. Sometimes underneath that, what I become aware of is that by keeping moving, I don't have to be 
with certain things that are hard to feel. Boredom, grief, frustration, emptiness, lost time, life being short, you know. And I'm so habituated to the doing, to being somebody that accomplishes and does things. You know how that goes, right? That it's hard to turn off in some moments. Who am I if I'm not running around, if I'm not doing something, collecting points, accomplishing things, finishing something? And there's a little gap there between that part that does or like a ice or something that you sort of have to go through or some place where you just have to stop and feel, I have to feel, the discomfort of stopping doing and then drop into the place of, oh, the chick crickets are chirping, it's a warm summer evening, the light in here is soft in the direction that I look for you, anyway in the room. Um, it's actually a lovely moment to be here or sitting with my wife or my daughter, you know, out in the yard watching the deer who come around all the time. When Pema was teaching in the meadow here and there were, you know, 650 people, and then a couple of the deer, the deer here really know that we don't eat venison at Spirit Rock. They've kind of come to trust us. And so they came and they kind of wandered around while she was teaching. It was like the deer park with the Buddha teaching. It was really beautiful. But there's a moment in between that moment where you're kind of hooked, or I'm kind of hooked, and then it takes a couple of breaths, a willingness to just let go and say, oh, here we are. Here we are again. And so in a certain way, the opposite of impatience, which is what I get, you know that state, right, is not patience, but actually a quality of contentment, a quality of wonder, a capacity to rest, to trust, to put our bags down instead of always having to do something. You know, instead of riding the train and keeping your bags on your lap, right? You actually put your bags down and enjoy the train ride. Or the old man who was, you know, on, never had um, been on an airplane before and for his... Uh, 75th birthday, his grandchildren got him a ride in a little plane so he could fly over the valley where his farm was and all of that, and he went up. But he was really nervous about it. He didn't really trust airplanes. And he got back down. They said, Grandpa, how was it? How did you like the ride? He said, well, it was beautiful to look down and, you know, see the valley and the rivers and everything from up there. He said, well, were you scared? He said, well, I was a little scared. I still don't trust those things so much. He said, I never fully let my weight down, right? <laughs> and we're like that, actually. The alternative is a kind of innocence, a contentment. Um, you know, remember when you were a kid, how long it was between birthdays? when you were really little. A year seemed forever it was so long. You know, a week seemed forever. When is it going to happen? And yes, there was a certain impatience, but in between that were all kinds of hours and days of just the miracle of being alive. Rumi again writes, he says, both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring and the wine of the grapes is not without its headaches. Are you waiting for it to be different? Set your heart on gold. Do not be an impatient bystander on this path. By God, there's no death worse than expectancy. Set your heart on gold and listen to my advice. What sprouts up every spring will wither by autumn, but the rose garden of the heart is always here. It needs no special season. And so this quality that's taught in the nobility of the heart is the sense of presence, not of progress, of getting better, but of being where we are in the reality of the present, in the now. Because in the end, it's all that we have is moments. 
the moment of the rose and the moment of the sunrise or sunset, the moment of this particular meal, the moment of the child or partner or lover, the moment of cooking and cleaning the dishes, the moment of pulling back into the driveway where you live after a day. There's a famous story about a Zen master who was teaching Zen and one of his disciples was struggling all the time to make himself great Zen, enlightened, whatever he imagined, sitting and sitting. And the Zen master said, what are you doing? He said, I am trying to perfect my Zen. And the Zen master picked up a brick, <laughs> held it in his hand and took out of the cloth from his pocket and began to rub the brick with a cloth like he was polishing it. And after a while, the student said, what are you doing, Master? He said, I'm polishing the brick so that it will shine like a mirror. And the student looked at him and he said, it will never shine, no matter how much you polish it. And the Zen master said, yes. <laughs> a brick is a brick. Sorrow is sorrow. Sitting in meditation is just sitting in meditation. Beauty is beauty. Things are the way they are. And the invitation of our nobility is to be with things, our discontent, our difficulty, our poison oak, if you will, the people who don't treat us well in traffic, the political situation, and so forth. doesn't mean we can't respond and move through traffic wisely and make our response in the political world. But are we going to live our life? Are we going to own our life, this life that's given to us? The real opening in spiritual life happens when we stop trying to make and do so much, be something special, and open to the mystery of being alive. The timelessness that's always here, this huge silence that surrounds everything we do. Zen Master Isa wrote a little poem. He lived in a small hut in the mountains. He said, in my hut there is nothing, there is everything. Because every moment has nothing in some way and everything. So what becomes useful is to study contentment. And you begin to realize that it's the heart that is content or patient. It's the mind, really, that spins out in impatience. And pay attention and notice if that's so. Or study what keeps us from contentment. What are the things that keep you from being content? In the deepest, most loving, present way. I mean, it's amazing. You know, how many people would be grateful for our life. You know, if you had cancer, and there probably are a few people that do in this room, but imagine, you know, the phone rings, you have cancer, doctor says you've got to come in, more tests, it's metastatic, all the stuff you have to deal with. And then they do the tests, and there you are, you know, flipped out, okay, I only, what's going to happen, I only have a little while to live, and so forth. And then they do the test and they look at it and you say, sorry, it was a mistake. It was someone else's test. You're fine. Oh, so happy, so relieved. All of a sudden, life is so sweet. Life is so full. Life is so special. Just to be alive, to walk in the sun, to sit, let your belly be soft and breath breathe itself to hug your children, to listen to the crickets, to watch the summer sunset or the moon rise. You say, what more could I want? Oh, nobly born, says the Buddha, remember who you really are and begin to trust. Trust the seasons of life. Trust your body and its opening. Don't the leaves fall down just like that, it says in the Tao. Trust in the rhythms of being born and dancing and singing and working and bringing justice and caring for life and loving 
can die. I remember when I lived in Bali a couple of different times on two uh, sabbaticals, took my family to live in uh, Asia, my daughter and my wife. And the first time that we lived in Bali, my daughter was six or seven years old. And for those months that we lived there, she studied Balinese traditional dancing at one of the dance schools near the palace in Ubud. And all the young girls in Bali studied dance, you know, and it, and it was a beautiful thing to see all these young girls learn their, you know, the stories of the Ramayana and the hand gestures and all of the kind of gracious movements and so forth. She, she went through all of that. And then at the end of some months of being there, it was time for us to go. Um, come, actually, we were then going on to India or Thailand. And her teacher said, well, she should have a recital because she's mastered these dances. And so we said, just fine. And they made this you know, time and date for a recital. And a couple of our friends came and we went. And it turned out it was late afternoon. And I was there, the proud father, right? And I had my cameras. I really wanted to take pictures. And they started to get her ready for the dance. Um, and uh, they took off most of what she was wearing, and they put on this silk skirt and these, this kind of golden belt and these special slippers. And then they wrapped this silk brocade around her body over and over in all these ways. And then they began to do makeup, and they're going on and on, and the light is starting to fade. It's not going to make good pictures, right? <laughs> and 20 minutes is going by, 30 minutes going by. They're still dressing the kid, right? They're putting on more, as, more makeup. The, the seven-year-old could die for this much makeup. It was so, you know, and I'm getting really impatient. Like, hurry up, we got to do this so I can get the pictures, right? <laughs> Crazy, right? And they go on and on, you know, 45 minutes to dress this child for six people who are going to watch her recital, right? And finally, the, teacher, the teacher's wife at the end, after they put this little crown on her head, the teacher's wife takes off her own golden necklace and puts it around my daughter. And then before she goes on the stage, before the musicians begin and the music starts, they explain, as if somehow they had felt my impatience, <laughs> they say, you know, in our culture, in Bali, we believe that all, uh, all people are artists. We believe that a child is an artist as much as an old person, and that everyone who has an artistic nature, which is all of us who let it out, um, that all artists dance and make music not for one another, but for the gods. And therefore, whoever is an artist must be dressed for the performance for the gods. And whether you're six years old, you know, or whether you're the greatest dancer in Bali at the palace in Ubud, you are prepared in exactly the same way because it's not for the audience. It's for that which is sacred. This again from Thomas Merton, and I read it because it's Labor Day, and often I talk about you know, right livelihood and all that kind of wise livelihood on Labor Day. And I think I am talking about it, but in a different language. Where Thomas Merton writes as an author, he said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. But if you write for men and women, you may make some money and may give someone a little joy and you make a noise in the world for a little while. But if you write for yourself, for your self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written, and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish you were dead. <laughs> but that the Lord build your house, ye build in vain, it says in the traditional biblical language. There is something about the dance in Bali or the writing of Merton or whatever work it's given to you to do. And it can be the simplest work, you know, of gardening or caring for children or the work of commerce and business as a merchant or the work of a healer or the work of a teacher. doesn't matter what the work is. But if we bring this quality of our nobility, of our Buddha nature, then what happens in that work becomes beautiful. 
and we know that it's possible, even though the people around us are in a hurry and impatient and stuff, not like us, right? We sit in meditation to touch the divine. We walk in meditation to honor the rhythms and the seasons of life. It is our birthright. Enlightenment, freedom of heart, is the invitation for you. It is your birthright. And patience or constancy is to discover our Buddha nature, to live from this place of aliveness and love. Now, there's something else that's kind of important to say. Over the course of these teachings, I haven't been doing questions much, and um, probably should have made time to do it, and maybe I will at some point these next weeks. So after some of the talks, people have come up with very good questions about the one-sided nature of these teachings. Um, Because their concern in the world is about the incredible amount of injustice and racism and continuing warfare and all of these things. So if I teach about virtue and speaking the truth and the beauty of a virtuous heart, someone says, yes, but isn't it okay to lie if you save a child's life or you save a lot of people's lives? You know, or I gave the teachings on renunciation and simplicity, and they say, yes, but suppose that you're in a position to get a lot of resources to save a lot of lives or to do something really important in the world. Maybe renunciation isn't the right movement. Or wisdom, where I talked about letting go. Um, Is there a time to hold on wisely? Or patience. Does it mean we should be patient and put up with the stupidity of, and the insanity, you know, of our oil-driven economy, of our capitalist consumer vision without the sense of the sacred, of what we're doing in this world as the largest, as the largest exporter of weapons ever on the face of the earth, and then feel that we're not safe. Um, And so I have to say that you must listen to a kind of wisdom that is really already within you, the middle path, if you will. Of course all those things are true. Of course it's a greater virtue to say that which will save many lives, even if it's not exactly true in the moment. But you have to know whether that's really your intention. You know, or is it hiding? Is it a power play? Is it something else? Of course, in renunciation, the real renunciation is our self-absorption. It's not the things, but it's the opening of the heart to the world, not clinging. And yes, there's times to hold on and times to let go. All of these are true, and with patience, too. Maybe there's a time, I wouldn't say to be impatient. There's a time to listen breathing in, calming the body and mind. And then there's a time to get out, get up and make a statement and act and change the world. And I like to think about Gandhi as the great exemplar of our time because he took one day a week in silence in the midst of the chaos that he was helping to lead, the dis- kind of dismantlement of the entire British Empire which is also very important for Americans to keep in mind how empire, how easy empires come and go, basically, because it's happening. We are in the uh, decline period. Pay attention. It's so, and that's the way it is. I, I hope we can do it a little gracefully, that's all. I mean, something to learn from England. Anyway. Um, but for Gandhi, what was important when he acted in the most... Um, committed and powerful political way that he could was to act from a place of stillness and centeredness and love, really, of the best benefit for all beings. So his actions had a strange and amazing, mysterious power to them because they came from that great heart. And so all these teachings aren't telling you how to be and there are times when Our rhythm of life says to sit and listen like Gandhi on that day. And then there are times when it says you have to get up and stand up for truth. 
And it only takes a few people who are really unshakable in their hearts, who are really know and speak from what's true to galvanize an enormous movement in the world. It does not take many people, but it has to come from a place of great truth for that to happen. And I see even these teachings of patience, if you will, as part of that. Thomas Merton again, where he writes, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work at times will be apparently worthless, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not just on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And that's another quality of this constancy or patience. It's not to get someplace, but it's actually to live it right now, to embody that which we would see blossom on this earth. Because if we can't do it now, when will we ever get there? This is the place where we have to bring it to life. Oh, nobly born, there is an enlightenment within you, a Buddha nature, the capacity to sit, to open your heart, your eyes, your mind, and be present for the mystery of this life without argument, without rejection, without ambition to sense the rhythms of day and night and praise and blame and gain and loss and hold it all in the great heart of compassion. You have done this. You know it's possible. This beautiful passage from T.S. Eliot where he writes, in this, this is the time of tension between dying and birth the place of solitude where three dreams cross, wavering between profit and loss in this brief transit. Blessed sister, holy mother, spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. What a great line. Teach us to care and not to care. Such small words and so beautiful. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. Because there is a beauty and a well-being and a care that we communicate to our bodies, to our loved ones, to the earth, when we return to who we really are. You could call it love or awakening or freedom or liberation. And the invitation of spiritual practice is to come back to that, even with all the impatient people inside yourself and around you. And it's not passive. It's actually the most alive that we can be. So... I want to end this talk by reading you a story, which I tend to read every year or two here, um, and which my daughter said um, I shouldn't read because I was too impatient and it wasn't right. Um, that, um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I had to learn more about patience before it was right for me to read this story. Um, but she's not here tonight. So. <laughs> um, it's a story um, in this book called, by Arnold Lobel called Frog and Toad Together, called The Garden. Um, and one of the things that's recently quite nice about this story is I read it here a year or two ago, and then um, the people who are working, Beth Wakis and Jacques Verdun and others who are working in San Quentin, as part of what was the Spirit Rock Prison Project, now the Insight Prison Project and the Garden Project. Wonderful work. And if any of you are interested in helping with that, please let me know, because we could use help. Um, there's now a garden in San Quentin Yard. Um, not that big yet, just a thousand square feet or so, but it's the only place in, in the yard in San Quentin where Latino, black, Asian American, Native American, white guys all um, come together and work 
the yard is really divided into gangs and groups and races, and that's the place where everyone comes together in this garden. It's quite beautiful. So Beth took this and brought it in and read it to the guys who were making the garden in San Quentin. Um, so relax, be patient, or not, as you like, you know, because it's also interesting to study impatience, so it's fine. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog, it's very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. <laughs> Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. <laughs> Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, now seeds, you start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, now seeds, start growing. Frog came running up the path. What's all this noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You're shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. So Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. You can see the guys in San Quentin listening to this story. Right? All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music to his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. <laughs> then Toad felt very tired, and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you are right, Frog. It was very hard work. <laughs> Let's sit for a few minutes here. And as you sit, a little inner reflection, kind of studying impatience, maybe. Where are we most impatient in life? Let yourself remember, reflect about it. What would we have to accept? or hold in compassion, hold in the heart, to come back to contentment. Fear, 
failure, loneliness, struggle. insecurity, let yourself sense what keeps you from contentment and joy. And honor this too, don't push it away, but bow to it as if you could. Respect it, name it gently, ah, this too can be met with an open heart. sense underneath the deep contentment and well-being, love that is your true nature. Remember the times, the capacity to rest on the earth, to be present for this mysterious life, and how wonderful it is to step out of time and live with the rhythms here and now. So in just a minute, we'll do a really simple chant for a minute or so and then go out into the summer evening. Thank you for your kind attention. So our little chant tonight um, is the simple one syllable. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, there's this text, the teachings of perfect wisdom in 80,000 verses that are summed up in 8,000 and in 800 and, and so forth, and summed up in one syllable, which again, for the impatient ones in you allows, uh, among you, allows you to not study so many years before you get it. Um, anyway, and for our sake tonight, this one syllable, the reason it's the sound of wisdom, it's considered the first and the last syllable of life. But most importantly, it's the sound of opening or letting go. So let's sing this seed syllable in Sanskrit, ah, for a bit. And you can feel what wants to be let go of so you can be here, present, fully, alive, open.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.